0: Concerns are being raised over safe supply programs in Canada because of what's being done after the drugs are administered to users in the program. A National Post investigation found many users are selling their safe supply drugs to other users so they can in turn buy stronger opioids on the street. I'm Dave Breckenridge and this is 10-3. National Post columnist Adam Zivo joins me to discuss the findings of his investigation, why addiction physicians are worried, and what, if anything, is being done to stop the practice. Don't forget you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Amazon Music. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about the show. So Adam, you recently launched a a fairly... Intensive read at nationalpost.com about issues with safe supply in Canada. And before we get into some of the details of that feature, first, what at its basic level is safe supply and how does it differ from other available treatment options for addiction like say methadone?
1: Safer supply is the idea that if the government gives tested drugs to uh, drug users, then it can mitigate overdoses and deaths. Uh, So essentially providing prescription opioids to drug users as an alternative to illicit substances that might be tainted or otherwise unpredictable. So let's say, for example, I'm a drug user. uh, Do I buy fentanyl off the streets where I don't know what's going to be in it? Or do I go and get a safe supply opioid? The latter seems to be the safer option. It differs from other treatments such as opioid agonist therapy in that it's meant to mimic the highs of illicit drug usage whereas let's say OAT, agonist therapy, uh, is meant just to manage withdrawals. So if you see someone who's using methadone, they're taking a long-lasting, relatively weaker opioid to manage withdrawals, but not to intoxicate them, whereas Safe Supply is meant to intoxicate someone and give them an experience similar to using illicit drugs.
0: So when we look at Safe Supply in Canada, I know it's kind of expanded over the last couple of years, but where was it first adopted? And was the program where it was first adopted a success, or at least how are officials
1: measuring what they're calling success? So the first air for supply program in Canada was the uh, London Pilot Project in London, Ontario, which was launched in 2016. And that project was almost immediately hailed as a success, partially because it relied on self-reported data uh, that suggested that everything was going well. Essentially, they surveyed their participants and the participants said that it was, you know, doing great. Uh, on top of that, the LAHC was providing a number of other wraparound supports, such as access to special doctors and, you know, housing supports that, uh, of course, would ensure that patients had a higher outcome. And there was very little uh, effort made to distinguish whether or not uh, positive outcomes were coming from those supports or from pl- providing safer supply itself. So. Because it seemed to be doing well, that project was then expanded across Canada, so Health Canada started to fund safer supply projects across the nation starting from 2017, and then the program really ramped up, starting from 2020. Uh, Now, what I do want to stress is that, though the LIHC's report said that the program was a success, the -the on-the-ground realities seen by addiction physicians nearby told a very different story. And what is it that addiction
0: physicians are seeing on the ground in London?
1: Well, so what they saw right away was massive diversion. And diversion here means essentially giving your safer supply hydromorphone away to someone else. Typically, that means selling it. So Dr. Sharon Koivu, uh, who is a London-based physician who I interviewed, said that initially... Diversion primarily occurred because people wanted to have a higher living standard. So they would get their, you know, free opioids from the from the governments, and then they would sell that and they use that to pay their rent or to buy nice things for themselves. Uh, because fentanyl wasn't really a thing back in 2016 in London. But then fentanyl became a thing. It started to course through the city. And the nature of safer supply diverg- uh, diversion really changed. So people began to sell hydromorphone to buy fentanyl. And ironically... That seemed to exacerbate the fentanyl crisis within London and accelerate it rather than mitigate it. Uh, we also should keep in mind that many of the people who were buying hydromorphone that was being diverted away from safer supply programs developed opioid addiction disorders because of that and then later graduated onto fentanyl.
0: Okay, and I do want to talk a bit more about diversion in a second, but one one question I had about, about safer supply or safe supply Are we talking like a one-to-one substitute? You mentioned hydromorphone with safe supply is like our heroin users given heroin or fentanyl users given fentanyl, or is hydromorphone kind of the, the drug of choice for these safe supply programs because they're easier to dispense in pill form, um, and presumably, I guess, safer to dispense than, than giving people very strong
1: surgical grade opioids. So hydromorphone is the drug of choice for Canadian civil supply programs, and its potency is roughly equivalent to that of heroin, if not stronger. And hydromorphone is dispensed whether or not you have a problem with heroin or with fentanyl. So it's kind of like a one-size-fits-all approach.
0: So users are given their supply of hydromorphone. It's not uh, unadulterated with potentially deadlier agents overdoses are prevented and everyone walks away happy, but, but that's not what's happening. You know, so you mentioned diversion. So essentially these patients in these programs are taking the, the safe supply of drugs they're given and they're, they're what they're sharing it with other users. They're selling it to other users. Uh, what's going
1: on there? Well, well, they're primarily selling it to other users. And the reason for that is that hydromorphone though, as powerful as heroin is only only has a shadow of the strength of fentanyl. Its effect relative to fentanyl is like holding a candle to the sun. So for fentanyl users, you know, they're used to something much more powerful, their opioid tolerance is very high, and they find that hydromorphone just doesn't get them high. And and that's something which has been recognized by Health Canada. In a March 2002 report, Health Canada acknowledged that even maximal doses of hydromorphone had almost no effect on fentanyl users aside from helping with withdrawal management. So essentially, you know, fentanyl users, they want to get high. They want to have that euphoria. Hydromorphone doesn't provide that to them. So they take that hydromorphone and they sell it on the streets. Now, the people who are buying this hydromorphone are not going to be fentanyl users because once again, it doesn't get them high. So that hydromorphone primarily flows to people who are less experienced opioid users, which typically means youth. So this is why youth are disproportionately buying hydromorphone And are disproportionately vulnerable to developing addiction because of it. Uh, Hydromorphone has also been a bit of an issue, well, a serious issue for people who are struggling with recovery because it's so ubiquitous.
0: And so what is this kind of creation of a secondary hydromorphone market done to the illicit drug market
1: in areas where there are safe supply programs? I mean, to my knowledge, it's had a negligible impact. When you look at overdose rates in Vancouver, they've only increased despite the rollout of safer supply. What I would say is that it's likely fueled more fentanyl consumption for two reasons. So first of all, people who are using fentanyl now have more disposable income to buy fentanyl. They're basically being given free money in the form of drugs to sell to buy fentanyl. Safer supply subsidizes fentanyl consumption. And then on top of that, uh, the illicit fentanyl, like sorry, the illicit hydromorphone market uh, has been flooded with black market supply because of safer supply diversion. And that's caused the price, the street price of hydromorphone in cities where safe supply is available, to go down by an estimated 70 to 95%. And so hydromorphone is now very cheap. It's very abundant. People don't realize how dangerous it is. So they're more willing to experiment with it. And now you have a whole bunch of youth who are using hydromorphone and they're developing addictions because of it. And they don't stay on hydromorphone. They eventually graduate to fentanyl, which means that now the illicit drug market has more customers. We'll be right back.
0: You know, you you talked about kind of what frontline workers in London were seeing amid this pilot project. Is that similar to the stories of other doctors
1: across the country? Yes, 100%. Uh, What I want to stress is that I've interviewed about 20 healthcare experts, of which 14 were addiction medicine practitioners. And all of them said the same thing, and they were scattered all over the country. So whether they were based in BC, whether they were based in Ontario, they were all saying the same thing, which is that diversion was a massive problem, and it was causing new addictions and other harmful effects in their communities.
0: And what about those in the recovery sector? What are they saying about this, about the new patients or new clients that they may be seeing? Um, How are they breaking
1: it down? So they found that it's had a horrendous impact on people who are struggling with recovery, and I primarily spoke with doctors who specialize in providing OAT. So once again, that's methadone, suboxone, it's opioid agonist therapy. And what they found is that many patients are now no longer enrolling in recovery-oriented treatments such as OAT because they find it easier and more you know enjoyable just to get hooked on safer supply and stay hooked on safer supply. So there are fewer people entering recovery-oriented treatments. And on top of that, people who are in recovery-oriented treatments are now relapsing at higher rates because there's hydromorphone everywhere. Uh, One doctor who I interviewed, who was based out of Ottawa, said that, you know, they had one patient who was living in a building, you know, filled with other people who were struggling, uh, economically marginalized. And they were trying to stay in recovery and drug dealers were aggressively marketing hydromorphone tablets to that patient. Um, and the patient thought he could just have one, and then it destabilized him. Another addiction physician who I interviewed who was based in BC said that half of the patients that they were seeing, uh, or rather they were initiating onto treatments, had either initiated a addiction or relapsed because of hydromorphone.
0: Now, when you talk about this issue of diversion and, and the problems that are being raised by, by these clinicians... Are provincial or federal health officials aware of the issue? And and if they are, what are they doing about it, if anything?
1: So federal and provincial officials are to some extent aware of this problem. Uh, health Canada conducted a preliminary review of safer supply pilot programs, and that review was published as a report in early 2022. That's the one that I mentioned earlier that acknowledged that uh, high tolerance meant that Safer Supply basically had no impact on fentanyl users, right? So Health Canada explicitly said in this report that hydromorphone doesn't work for that kind of drug user. Now, I emailed Health Canada as part of my investigation and I asked them about diversion and it was hard to tell if they were just trying to bury the issue or if they were just horribly incompetent because they said that they were taking it seriously. But they basically provided no serious strategy to address it. They said, for example, that uh, pharmacists should report any theft of drugs from their pharmacy. But that's not the issue because diversion happens after a pharmacist dispenses a drug to a patient. They said that, oh, pharmacists could crush pills to make it harder to divert. But that doesn't make any sense because drug users are crushing hydromorphone for injection anyways. So you're actually just saving them a step. I forwarded Health Canada's response to over 10 addiction physicians and all of them said that it was puzzling, uh, absurd, that it showed a a woeful lack of understanding of the issue. So I'm inclined to say that Health Canada is incompetent on this issue, but at the same time, I'm aware that much of the research into safer supply is being politicized and that addiction physicians are being discouraged from researching its negative impacts. So I strongly suspect that Health Canada's laissez-faire attitude towards safer supply diversion isn't just out of ignorance, but is actually a political choice. And and when you say that like it's being politicized, who's politicizing this? Well, you can think of this politicization in two senses. So you can think of it, you know, in terms of the federal government finding itself being overly committed to a particular drug strategy and not wanting to admit that that this drug strategy is wrong. Right, so after I published my report, It was mentioned in Question Period, where Pierre Polyev interrogated Trudeau about my findings. And Trudeau essentially just responded by accusing Polyev of engaging in fear-mongering. And uh, Trudeau said, we have to listen to frontline experts, Uh, which was really strange to hear because my report is based off the testimonies of frontline experts. You know, you don't get more frontline than an addiction physician. The Associate Health Minister, Carolyn Bennett, who is the primary person who was responsible for safer supply at the federal level, uh, she accused Polyev of sharing false information about safer supply because he was sharing my findings, uh, even though she herself is making claims that don't align with the research produced by Health Canada. And, and the thing is that I think that my research is solid enough that it's worth to have a conversation. You know, it can't be dismissed so easily and and i'm finding that you know because minister bennett and trudeau haven't provided any specifics as to what exactly they think is inaccurate the whole thing reads to me as like a kind of attempt to bury these findings rather than critically engage with them so on my end i feel as if the liberals are just too attached to this program to fully to to engage with it objectively so there's another level of politicization and that comes from a A small clique of researchers who are primarily based in Vancouver, uh, who spent about 20 years producing shoddy research in support of harm reduction strategies that just don't work. Now I can't go into the full details of that because that'll be covered in my later reporting, but the level of questionable behavior when it comes to research is really quite astounding. And I encourage listeners to keep track of my reporting over the next few months to learn more about how that happened. So I mean
0: ultimately what's the fix here if we're looking at an issue around how safe supply drugs are being abused and either resold or or given to other people why don't we just do like methadone and have clients take their safe supply drugs under supervision i mean we have supervised consumption sites in cities across the country i don't like why don't we go that route with it
1: Well, I think supervised consumption would be one way to improve things. The problem is that supervised consumption of hydromorphone wouldn't be a credible way to deal with fentanyl addiction because, as mentioned earlier, hydromorphone doesn't have an impact on fentanyl users. I think one thing we could do is invest more money into making oat more easily available. From what I've heard, oat access is not where it should be. And as a result, people can't get recovery-oriented treatment as easily as they should. So that's another option. Uh, The main problem, though, is that fentanyl has made traditional oat very difficult um, because fentanyl is so powerful that drugs like methadone aren't as effective with fentanyl users. Uh, which is why Safer Supply was actually proposed as an alternative strategy to begin with. So ultimately,
0: what would some of these physicians that you talk to want to see done? Like what's the solution to dealing with these issues with safe supply that see people reselling their drugs to buy
1: more powerful drugs that could potentially kill them? Well, so one thing that all of these physicians agree to is that uh, if Safer Supply does survive in Canada, It absolutely needs to be done under supervision. There can be no future, no responsible future, where we continue to just give people hydromorphone to take home and provide no accountability mechanisms uh, to prevent them from selling it on the streets. On top of that, most of these physicians want to see an increased investment in harm reduction, but they want to see investment in responsible forms of harm reduction, like supervised consumption sites. But the thing is that outside of these, you know, broad, uncontroversial points, there's a lot of variation in terms of what people believe. And that's a good thing because it shows that the addiction physicians who oppose Safer Supply don't just come from one ideological school. They come from all over the spectrum and they come from a wide variety of beliefs on how to address the opioid crisis. So it's not like one school of thought against another. It's many different schools of thought that all believe that that Safer Supply doesn't work.
0: Well, I know it's an important issue as Canada still reckons with an overdose crisis, definitely an important topic. Adam, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. 103 is produced by Tyler Dawson, theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest Adam Zivo, more from him at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening.